happening. My name is Larry Rowe. I am the uh, oldest member of youth group and still the youngest member of the old, old uh, Over the Hill gang. <laughs> anyway, I'm honored today to be able to, to bring the Word of God to you here. So, uh, uh, Picking up in uh, John 16, at, starting at verse 6, it goes, Because we have uh, said these things, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you'll see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but I cannot bear, but you cannot bear them now. However, when the, when the uh, Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears me, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Thank you very much, Larry. Now, um, if you're new to the church, you may not realize that we make it a practice to preach through an entire book of the Bible. And so therefore, each message builds off the last one. And Larry, what he just read to you um, is a continuation in the book of John, and it's a continuation of the discourse. It's called the farewell discourse that Jesus was giving his disciples. And Jesus is preparing them for the time that he goes away. He's doing everything he can within his power to make sure they know what to expect when they encounter difficulties so that they don't fall away. He's preparing to face persecutions and all kinds of things, and even culminating in their martyrdom, their death. And Jesus talks about sorrow. And in last week's message, we heard the why. We heard why sorrow is filling their hearts. Now in John 16, 2, it reads, they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. Now, obviously, this is some bad news. This is This is hard to hear. And now Jesus adds to that bad news. In verse 5, he says, But now I'm going to him who sent me. He's leaving. So now we have, people are going to kill you, and, oh yeah, I'm out of here. I'm splitting. So the disciples, they're just punch drunk. They're, They're overwhelmed. But Jesus needs to tell them these things so that they don't fall away and they know what to expect. And as the disciples had been following Jesus, they saw the hatred that was directed at Jesus. They experienced it themselves to a certain degree because of their association with him. But because Jesus was there in the flesh, he was the one that was the primary target. But soon the disciples were going to have to face what had been directed at Jesus. Now, the world wouldn't be able to hit Christ Because he's not there. So Satan and the false religions and all that hate Jesus will have to settle for hitting the disciples instead. All that hostility, it's coming for those who bear the name of Jesus. And he didn't stress this fact too much earlier because he didn't need to. Jesus was there to take all the heat. 
But now Jesus needs to prepare them. And he tells them in verse 4, that I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So forewarned is forearmed. You know, when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, a key to enduring it is to know what to expect. Now, in my own life, uh, right out of high school, I joined the Army. And I remember before going off to boot camp, people who had been there before and knew what to expect would tell me what was going to happen to me when I stepped off the bus for the first time. You know, they didn't want me to be blindsided by by what I was about to encounter. You know, people told me that the drill sergeants would abuse you. They would do everything they could to get under your skin. And when I stepped off the bus, it looked something like you'd see on the Discovery Channel Shark Week. They were just all over us. You know, we were the the bloody chum in the water. And I remember how helpful it was to be warned beforehand about what was going to happen. You know, if I had shown up expecting the welcome wagon to be rolled out, you know, maybe an encouraging, you know, pep talk or, hey, thanks for signing up to serve, welcome, you know. If I had expected those things, I would have been in for a shock. But instead, I knew what to expect, and I knew how I should react to it, and therefore I could bear under it, bear up under it better. But I think there was a couple guys there that didn't get that memo. You know, they didn't know what to expect, or maybe they didn't take it to heart. And let's just say they had a very hard time adjusting to their new lives. Now, the disciples of Jesus, they were about to step off the bus, so to speak, And Jesus had been warning them because like the naive new recruits, they had some high hopes that needed to be recalibrated. You know, they had great ambition about what was going to happen to them when Jesus came into their kingdom. They had dreams of being seated at the right hand of Jesus. They they were looking forward to Jesus running the Romans out of town. They were looking forward to this great political victory. And they still needed to be reminded about the trials that they had to go through. You know, these victories were assured, but they had the timing wrong in their minds. And so we're still waiting for that coming kingdom to come today. So we, like the disciples, need to readjust our expectations. Now, the book of Acts in chapter 14, 22, we read through many tribulations, we must pass to enter the kingdom of God. Now, for the disciples, one of those coming tribulations was the fact that Jesus was going away from them. And Jesus knows it hurts. He knows what he's saying is doing to them. And he identifies what they're feeling in verse 6. He says, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Now, they had a plan. The disciples had a plan about how their lives was going to go. But Jesus had a different plan. Jesus, he bursts their bubble And now the conversation is about to take a really, really unlikely turn. What they, Jesus tells them that what they are perceiving as bad news is actually for their advantage. Now try to imagine the faces of the disciples as Jesus says the words of verse seven to them. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What? (laughs) You know, put your, put your, uh, put yourself in the place of the disciples for a minute. So you spent three years with this Jesus. He's going away. People are going to kill you. 
And now this mysterious helper is going to come in the place of Jesus, and that's supposed to be to your advantage? That's the plan? That's the, the better plan that Jesus has than what they were hoping for? How can this possibly be true? What could be better for the follower of Jesus than spending time with Jesus? Who is better than that? What is better than that? Now, of course, Jesus isn't misleading them. The arrival of this helper who is God, the Holy Spirit, in the place of Jesus, it is to their advantage, but it goes right over the heads of the disciples. And if I could be so bold, I think that fact still goes right over our heads today. Now, God's plan to send the Holy Spirit is actually a better plan than having Jesus here with us. Now, I'm not trying to be uh, irreverent here, but imagine if Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on flesh and decided to join us here this morning at Faith Church. You know, can you imagine the excitement? Um, that would be an experience to remember. You know, he would have our undivided attention. We'd hang on every word. You know, people would line up for days just to catch a glimpse of him. And rightly so. You know, he is God incarnate. But is the excitement level that high when we consider God the Holy Spirit is, in fact, joining us today? And every day, if you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, this is the better plan that Jesus has for his disciples. And until that plan is fulfilled, until the time comes for him to come again, it is the better plan that he has for us, his church. Now, of course, we all, we all want to be with Jesus. There's something about face-to-face ministry. And the Bible, the Bible closes with the words, come Lord Jesus. And in the book of Philippians, Paul's wrestling with that tension of wanting to be with Jesus. Paul says it's his desire to depart and be with Christ. So let's look at Philippians 121. It says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So his desire, what he wants is to depart. But it's interesting because before Paul even says this, he's already resolved the issue in his mind. Now, backing up just one verse, we read, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Key phrase here, whether by life or by death. So whether Paul is with Christ or whether Paul is with the Holy Spirit here on earth doing spirit-enabled work, he is trusting that God has a better plan than Paul's own desire. Paul's wish it was to depart. He saw that as better, but he lived for another five years on earth after this. And part of God's plan for Paul was to complete the book of Philippians, to write the book of First and Second Timothy, the book of Titus. <clears throat> that was God's plan for him. And there was suffering involved in God's plan for Paul. You know, God's plan ended with martyrdom. And many of you are suffering right now, wrestling with the fact that your suffering is actually part of God's plan. 
it's so hard to say that. I choke on those words knowing what you're going through. But I can assure you it is part of God's plan. And one day, God will turn your suffering to glory. Hang in there. Now, until the, until the day comes when we meet Jesus and we all want to be with Jesus, and we will, but right now God has a different plan for us. And not just a different plan, but it is a better plan. Remember, Jesus says it is to his advantage, to our advantage, that he goes away. Now, Jesus is called God with us. And the Holy Spirit is God in us. That's an incredible distinction, you know, with or in, which is closer? In. God indwelling in you. Now, under the old covenant, when King David sinned, he would cry out, God, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. But now, for us, for those of us who are living under the new covenant, because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, we are permanently cleansed. We are made clean. We're holy. Our sins are forgiven. We are justified. It's as if we have never sinned. So how can a holy God, how can a holy God depart from us? There's no reason to. We're clean. Our past and our present sins are covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit in us. It's amazing. And I think one of the, the hard, one of the reasons we have such a hard time esteeming the Holy Spirit's presence as, as highly as we should, it's because we have a hard time understanding him. He is just flat out mysterious. Um, when Jesus talked to the disciples about him, when he talked about this helper, notice they didn't even ask any questions. You know, it just went right over their heads. They just couldn't even compute. <laughs> so what is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believer? Well, Jesus gives us some very specific things that the Holy Spirit does in our text today, but it's not an all-inclusive list by any means. So I'll just try to give a summary as best I can of the work of the Holy Spirit that isn't included in today's verse. So the Holy Spirit, he is the one who opens our eyes so that we can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us spiritual life through our rebirth. He's the one that transforms us. He's going to bring us into the glorious resurrection that awaits all followers of Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit, he is the true author of Scripture. He works by inspiring human authors to write, and now he gives us understanding and insight into the word of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who delivers on all the promises of Jesus. He gives us these spiritual gifts for us to use in the building up of the church body, and he opens our eyes um, he gives us understanding to God's will and his purposes in our lives. We have all that delivered to us by God through God, the Holy Spirit. And there's so much more to be said about the Holy Spirit. But for today, our text is going to help us focus and zero in on what Jesus is revealing to his disciples at this time. Now, we see in John sixteen eight that the Holy Spirit brings to the world three things. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So we see judgment, righteousness, and sin. And what is this sin that Jesus mentions? He goes on to say it's the sin of unbelief. He says in verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Unbelief, it is the primary sin. 
We heard last week in John fifteen twenty two that if Jesus had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. And as Pastor Brent explained last week, that Jesus is referring to the sin of disbelief. But now, since he spoke to them, they have no excuse for their sin. Now, this disbelief, it is the root sin that needs to be dealt with before other sins can really be addressed. And seeing the severity of the sin of disbelief, it doesn't come naturally. We need the Holy Spirit to convince us, to convict us of how just, of how grievous this sin truly is. Because without the Holy Spirit flicking the lights on, so to speak, these words, they just don't carry any punch. They don't carry the weight. They don't carry authority. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the weight. He's the one who convicts, as it says in our verse today. He informs us of the guilty verdict that has fallen because of our unbelief. And once that verdict falls, once we're convicted of our sin, we see in verse 10 that now we are convinced of righteousness. It says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. So, causing us to grasp the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the next work of the Spirit. And Jesus says that the evidence of this, the proof of his righteousness, is the fact that he goes to the Father. Sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God, and on our own, we aren't fit for heaven. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus, he goes to the Father. He can stand in the presence of the Father because he is righteous. Now, the unbelieving world cannot naturally see the goodness, the the righteousness of Jesus. When he was here in the flesh, he was accused of being a madman. He was accused of being a blasphemer, a liar, and even as being possessed by a demon. Or else he was just ignored or he wasn't taken seriously. Now that is how the world naturally responds to Jesus and his righteousness. You know, that's the world's. But what about you? What about us? You know, when we look at Jesus, what do we see? Do we see a madman? Do we see a prophet? Do we see a teacher? Do we see someone just to be ignored? So I'll ask you the same question that, Jesus asks his disciples in Matthew sixteen, fifteen. He says to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this is a profession of faith. It's a profession of belief, and it doesn't come natural to us. It says, flesh and blood cannot reveal this. The Father in heaven discloses this truth. And how does the Father who is in heaven, how does he disclose this truth to us who are down here on earth? Well, by way of the Holy Spirit. John fifteen twenty six. but when the Helper comes whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit is the one who convinces people of who Jesus is in a way that no earthly argument, no flesh and blood disclosure ever could. Now, we are called 
to bear witness. We are called to share the gospel. This work is absolutely necessary. People cannot believe unless they hear. But our work, our work is the equivalent of leading a horse to water. Only the Holy Spirit can make him drink. And the Holy Spirit, he also convinces the world of what happens when people don't drink of the living water of Jesus. Verse 11, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning judgments because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, when Jesus says the world, he's talking about the ideas, the, the values, the philosophies and the religions that exist in opposition to the heavenly kingdom that Jesus brings. But just because the world system forms apart from the influence of God, that doesn't mean that the world isn't a spiritual kingdom. It is. And Jesus tells us that this world has a ruler. First John 5.19 clearly identifies him. The world, the whole world, lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one is, of course, Satan, the one who opposes God and opposes his church at every single turn. And remember, when Jesus uses the word world, he uses it to draw a distinction between the heavenly kingdom and the fallen worldly kingdom. And when Jesus says Satan is the ruler of the worlds, he's not saying that Satan rules all. Now, God is still sovereign, but it does mean that God, in his infinite wisdom, he allows Satan to operate within the boundaries that God has set for him. Satan is still restrained from running totally amok. Now, we read in the book of Job that the devil, he still has to ask permission to afflict Job. And even then, God says, you can only go so far. And then Satan um, in the New Testament, he demands to sift the disciples like wheat, meaning that he wants to shake their faith to the point when they fall away. And for us, God still uses the devil to, 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 to uh, put us through trials that will try our faith. But what Satan uses to try to destroy our faith, God uses to prove our faith. That's what happened with Job. That's what happened with the disciples. And I pray that's what happens with us today. But like I said, these trials, you know, they are, they are, there are still sovereign God enforced boundaries that Satan has to operate within. Colossians 1.13 tells us that Christians, that we are not at the mercy of Satan. It says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved sons, beloved son. So we are still in the world but we're not of the world. We don't belong to the world. We're not under the power of the, the ruler of this world, who is Satan. But unbelievers, on the other hand, they're caught up with the world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. But God does not desire for unbelievers to stay there in the state of slavery to the, the, the God of this fallen world. And so in John sixteen eleven, the Holy Spirit brings to light, brings to our attention the fact that the ruler of this world is judged. So he's alerting non-believers that they are playing for the losing team. Satan is defeated. He is judged. He's judged now because his power over sin and death is broken and his ability to accuse us 
before the judge of the universe, God, is neutralized because Jesus paid the debt for the, the sin debt that we owe. And Satan's claim on us as king of those who have rebelled against God is canceled. He's defeated. And even though he still rages now, even though he still has some power, he will one day face the judgment found in Revelation 20. It says, And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan is already judged, and the lake of fire is his pending sentence. That's the fate of Satan. That's the fate of all who follow him. And of course, that's terrible news for the unbeliever. The guilty verdict falls. There's a worldwide conviction of those who do not believe, and the sentence is eternal torment. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to us that this is true. This is certain. But let's go back to John 16.8, and we'll take a closer look at the sequencing of the words that Jesus chooses here. It says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning, first, sin, next, righteousness, and finally, judgment. So we see a, a chain of events here. And the first link in the chain is the conviction of sin. And last is judgment. But between these two events, we see righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, who is the judge of the universe. In the righteousness of Jesus, it enters into our trial. It comes between the point when we are convicted of sin and the, the righteousness absolves us of our death sentence, which is the judgment that we as sinners share with the ruler of this world and unbelievers. And that's what, this, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He shines light on the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is our pardon. He's the ransom for the convicted prisoners on their way to their execution. And the chain that links our sin to the judgment is broken. Now, we try to, we try to break this chain ourselves in all kinds of ways. We try to pay for our sins. Uh, maybe we cling to uh, guilt as some kind of penance. Like if we make ourselves miserable enough, then maybe somehow that will pay for our sins and set the scales of justice right. Or we try to earn our way into heaven by cleaning ourselves up, by doing good deeds as if the good could erase the bad. Now, that's our plan, but God has a better one. God's mercy, it takes away the punishment that our sin deserves, and he lays it on Jesus Christ on the cross. And God's grace, it gives us access to heaven, which we don't deserve, because God lays on us the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And there's more to say about what we encounter in our journey on this timeline of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, Jesus says in John 16, 12, I still have many, many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So these many things, these words of God, these things that Jesus has to say to us and to the disciples, they're not only the words that Jesus spoke while he was in the flesh, but everything, all the words of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And these are the many things that God has to say to us. And if you make it a regular practice to, to read through your Bible, as we all should, 
the words in verse 12 about Jesus having too much to say, too much for the disciples to bear at once will ring true to you. Now, I'll read something in the Bible, uh, a book I read several times, and I'll see something that I swear was not there the last time I read it. Or in other cases, maybe I knew it was there, but it had no connection to me. It had no application. It had no personal meaning. It just didn't jump off the page, and now it does. And that happens because God knows what we are going through in our lives. God gives us provision from his word as we need it. Just like the manna that he used to feed the Hebrews in their wanderings, um, he didn't deliver manna by the, the dump truck full. You know, He didn't tell them to fill up their backpacks with it and take it with them. He gave it to them daily as needed. Give us our daily bread. And the Holy Spirit knows the path that we were on, and he reveals things to you about God's word as you need it. Not necessarily all at once. And Psalm 32 says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So it is the Holy Spirit who is our counselor. He opens our eyes to the words of truth in the Bible. And as we follow him, he will lead us into a path that is in harmony and within his purpose and will. And this is a better plan than anything we could come up with ourselves. And the question is, are we reading the plan? Are we reading our Bibles? Now we can see in John sixteen thirteen that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. So the provision and the guidance of God found in his word, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, is sufficient for all things, all things pertaining to life and godliness. But you've got to read the plan for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the plan. And we also see that the Holy Spirit will declare to us things that are to come, which he does through the books of prophecy. John sixteen thirteen says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So we can know all that we need to know about things to come. And notice I didn't say we know everything we, we need to know right now about the things to come. Like Jesus said, there are some things that we cannot bear yet. There are per- parts of the books of prophecy that are confusing. And maybe, just maybe, we aren't meant to understand them just yet. But as the end times unfold, some of these things will make more sense to us. But we can know. We can know from a sober spirit-illuminated, careful study of the books of prophecy, all that we need to know about things to come. Now, God's plan is good. He's been faithful to us in the past, so we can trust him with the things that are mysterious about our future. And we can trust him with the things that we don't understand about our, about our present or the things that are painful about our present. We can trust him. And as we study the word of God, as the spirit continually reveals these things to us, Jesus sets up some guardrails to help us discern what is the voice of the Holy Spirit, what is his true voice, and what is a counterfeit. Because remember the ruler of the world, Satan, you know, he is a spirit that is still at work in the world, and he seeks to counterfeit the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus warns us about this in Matthew 24, 24. 
He says that false Christs, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So how can we know the difference? How do we know what is real and what's a deception? Well, the best way to spot a counterfeit is to familiarize yourself with the real deal. John MacArthur, he gives an example in his book, Reckless Faith. He says, federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. Instead, they study the real bills until they master the look of the real thing. Then, when they see the fake money, they recognize it. Now, in his talk with the disciples, Jesus tells us what the real deal looks like. In John fifteen twenty six, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, it says he will bear witness about me. He's going to bear witness about Jesus. That's how we test the spirits. So is the, is the spirit bearing witness to Jesus? Is the spirit in conformity with scriptures, with, which ultimately point to Jesus? Or is the spirit pointing to something else completely different? Is the spirit, is the spirit, um, glorifying the person who is using these gifts? Is the spirit pointing to something else other than Jesus in the Bible? That's how we can tell what is true or what is a counterfeit. And only the Holy Spirit can impart faith. Only the Holy Spirit can glorify, which is to throw a spotlight on the work of Christ. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do this work alone. God allows us to share in the work of the Spirit. And as the worship team makes their way back up front this morning, uh, let's remember that the Holy Spirit doesn't minister in a vacuum. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells, and he does the work of glorifying the Son through us as he calls us, as as he enables us to do the work to be his witness. And the work of a witness is to declare the truth. And as we sing, we declare the truth of God to each other, and we declare the truth of God to those who do not yet believe. And our last verse for the day, it's found in John sixteen, fourteen. It says, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, we read that the the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ by declaring the truths of Christ. And as we open our mouths to sing, remember that we are living, singing temples of God, the Holy Spirit. And through us, in the life he lives within us, and by the words we are about to sing, he is glorifying Jesus Christ through us, his church. Now, he doesn't need us to do this. He could simply reveal his glory and every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And one day, this is going to happen. But for now, his better plan is that we should be the bearers of his glory into this world. So please stand and let's glorify Jesus Christ. Let's declare that Jesus is God. Let's bear witness together with the Holy Spirit.